As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Our episodes deal with serious and often distressing incidents. If you feel at any time you need support, please contact your local crisis centre. For suggested phone numbers for confidential support, please see the show notes for this episode on your app or on our website. Eighteen-year-old Guthmund Arenason took a final swig from his bottle of brandy. He looked once more around the packed nightclub for his friends. Located in the small fishing town of Habnafjotha, 17 kilometres south of Guthmund's home in Blessegroff, Iceland, the nightclub was buzzing for a Saturday. Most of the town's younger population were present, dancing and drinking their night away. Guthmunda had been partying all day, and when it was time to leave the club, his friends were nowhere to be seen. Assuming they had deserted him for the company of a group of girls, Guthmunda left the bar. Inebriated, Guthmunda was escorted outside by an older man he had befriended earlier in the night. The weather changed considerably from the time Guthmunda entered the nightclub to his exit in the early morning of Sunday, January 27, 1974. The light drizzle of rain had given way to a furious snowstorm. Wind howled through the streets and the temperature dropped to below freezing as snow blanketed the footpaths and the roads turned icy. Iceland was short on nightlife so Guthmunda had walked to get to the club. He was now facing the prospect of a three-hour return trip at 2am in hazardous conditions. Guthmunda's companion was wearing a bright yellow shirt that stood out amongst the white snowfall. The pair decided to try their luck at attracting a vehicle to hitchhike home. Elimborg Rabsdotter and her friend Sigritha Magnusdotter drove past the men. Elimborg recognised Guthmunda in his checkered jacket, green pants and brown shoes. She pulled over to offer him a lift. As she slowed down, Guthmunda's new friend threw himself onto the bonnet of their vehicle in a drunken state. Deterred by his behaviour, the two women changed their mind and refused to let them in. 
A few hours later, a driver passed Guthmunda walking on the main road out of Habnafjotha towards his family home in Blessogroff. He was alone and stumbling, almost falling in front of the car as it drove by. The man passed Guthmunda and kept his concentration on the road ahead as it continued to snow heavily. Following this sighting, Guthmunda Anison vanished. Initially assuming he was staying with friends, Guthmunda's father was unconcerned by his son's absence. When two days passed with no word from his son, his feelings changed and he reported Guthmunda missing. In 1974, the population of Iceland was just over 215,000 people. Homicide was nearly an unheard of event. Given the inclement weather on the night of Guthmunda's disappearance, combined with his clean police record, police were quick to rule out foul play. Rather, they assumed that Guthmunda had either gotten disorientated and lost, or had injured himself, perhaps fatally, on the journey home. A barren expanse of lava fields, the landscape outside of Habnafjotha was covered with craters and crevices. Some reached a depth of 30 metres. Due to the snowstorm, 60 centimetres of fresh snow had fallen in the past few days, further concealing the fissures in the ground. Over 200 people searched for Guthmunda in the less than favourable conditions. Some waded waist-deep in snow, while a helicopter circled the lava fields from above. Isolated roads leading to his friends' houses were checked, as well as sheds and outhouses, in case Guthmunda had sought shelter during the storm. Those who had seen Guthmunda on the day of his disappearance could do little to shed a light on his whereabouts. A week after Guthmunda disappeared, the snow began to melt. The search party returned to the lava fields to continue scouring the landscape. There was no sign of him. The man in the yellow shirt who left the nightclub with Guthmunda was never identified. Weeks and months passed by. It was not uncommon for people to go missing in the unforgiving terrain of the Icelandic lava fields or accidentally drown in rough seas off the country's rocky cliff faces. As time went on, Guthmunda's family came to terms with the fact that he was yet another person who went missing amongst the unforgiving Icelandic wilderness. With no leads to go on, detectives also reached this conclusion, and the case was closed. In December 1973, a month before Guthmunda's disappearance, 18-year-old Erla Bolladolta attended a house party in Reykjavik. A free spirit enthralled by the recent hippie influences that had reached the shores of Iceland, 
Erla often visited the communes around the area to party, dance, smoke cannabis, and listen to rock music with like-minded teens. At the party, Erla was drinking a glass of cola when she began to feel strange. She realised her drink had been spiked with the hallucinogenic drug LSD. Erla explored the house, looking for somewhere quiet to rest until the effects of the drug had worn off. In a darkened room, she tripped over a man lying on the floor. He introduced himself as 18-year-old Saiva Chashelsky. He was also riding out an LSD trip after his drink had been spiked. Together, the two lay in the darkness and spoke about their lives. Saiva was a child of an American Polish father and an Icelandic mother. His foreign-sounding name, combined with his slight frame and short stature, made him a target for bullies during his school years. With dyslexia and ADHD, Saiva had trouble concentrating at school. When he was 14, a psychiatrist recommended that he be sent to a home for delinquent boys. At the home, the boys were expected to do farm work, complete schooling, and return to their parents completely reformed. After a few years, Saiva went back to his family in Reykjavik. The home did little to transform Saiva. Although very intelligent, he spent his late teen years committing petty crimes such as theft and drug smuggling with his friend Christian. Years later, the boys' home Saiva attended was shut down amid allegations from past students about physical abuse and rape that had occurred behind closed doors. Erla was drawn to Saiva as he spoke of his history. She found his foreign look, with shoulder-length brown hair, intense brown eyes and delicate features, mysterious and attractive. Erla also opened up about her life. She was the middle child of three. As a child, her family lived in New York, where her father worked as a station manager for Iceland Air at Kennedy Airport. Her family returned home to Iceland when Erla was seven, and she spent her childhood years at the local school. On school holidays, she was sent to various farms around Iceland to assist as a farmhand, a common tradition for Icelandic families at the time. After being touched inappropriately by a farmer, Erla returned home a changed girl. She became withdrawn from her family and rebelled against her parents. Erla's parents divorced, and as a teen, after a fight with her mother about curfew times, Erla went to live with her father. Erla empathised with Saiva, and found his love of the arts, particularly film, music and painting, fascinating and exciting. They spoke until morning. Erla later commented in the documentary Out of Thin Air, After that night, there was no other way to go forward but together. Erla's mother was less than impressed that her daughter was dating a former student from a home for delinquent boys and forbade him from entering her house. 
Despite warnings from her family that Saiva was a dangerous man, Erla quickly fell in love. Saiva and Erla were inseparable. Saiva often spent time at Erla and her father's house in Habnafjortha, a small white and red roofed apartment on Hammersbroach Road. At the time, Erla worked for the telegraph service as a clerk. Shortly after moving in with her father in early 1974, he had a stroke and was hospitalised, leaving Erla to live alone for the first time in her life. Working long hours, Erla became profoundly depressed and lonely. Saiva would disappear for days at a time, refusing to explain his absences to her when he returned. She was certain he was seeing other women. Erla spent her time off work lying in bed staring out the window for the entirety of the day. Her weight plummeted and her long blonde hair accentuated her pale face and dark under-eye circles. When Saiva was around, he spoke constantly about wanting to pull off the perfect crime. He boasted about the joy he would get from the Icelandic authorities not being able to figure out who did it. Bank robberies, petty theft, smuggling drugs and introducing LSD into the water supply were some of the crimes he fantasised about. Easily led by Saiva and wanting to impress him, Erla and Saiva hatched the perfect plan. Erla's work at the telegraph service gave her a thorough knowledge of the procedures in Iceland for transferring money over the phone. Saiva obtained a fake woman's ID with a false name and photograph. Erla and Saiva then picked apart the telephone receiver at her house, shoving a cloth into the mouthpiece. When Erla then phoned the National Phone Company's telegraph reception centre with a fake name, her voice was muffled, giving the impression that the phone call was being placed from far away. She told the operator that she was from a post office in the southwest of Iceland and was placing a money order on behalf of a customer there. A few days later, a female friend of Sivers went to collect the money with a fake ID, showing the name Erla had given the telegraph centre. Together, Erla and Siva made off with just under half a million krona or approximately 5,000 Australian dollars in today's currency. Pleased with themselves, they repeated the scam. Erla dared to collect the money herself, applying heavy makeup so she resembled the photo ID she held. With shaking hands, she gave the ID to the post office clerk. After a few moments, the clerk smiled and went to retrieve the money. Again, the pair had netted themselves just under half a million krona. Unsure of what to do with the money, they stashed it in a cupboard in Erla's bedroom. However, it wasn't long before the missing money was noticed and reported to authorities. Tuesday, November 19, 1974, marked 10 months after the disappearance of Guthmunda Einarsson. That day, 
32-year-old Geofina Anison finished work and headed to his home in Keblavik, Iceland. A small fishing community, Keblavik lay approximately 40 kilometres west of where Guthmunda was last seen. Although both men shared the surname Anison, they were unrelated and had never met. Unlike Guthmunda, the 18-year-old apprentice carpenter who loved to party and whose friendly nature never left him short of friends, Geofina was much more reserved. Fourteen years his senior, Geofina was a quiet man who worked hard as a manual labourer and enjoyed spending spare time with his young family. Returning home, Geofina and his family ate dinner together. Geofina, tired from a hard day's work, went to bed to read a book. His wife went to the library. She returned home at approximately 8.30 to find Geofina in the company of his friend Thorther. Both men were watching television and drinking coffee. Geofina told Thorther that he had some people to meet and asked if he could get a ride. He wanted to go to a cafe near the Keblavik docks. The pair departed at around 10pm. Geofina was quiet during the car ride, declining to elaborate on who he was seeing or the purpose of the meeting. As they drew nearer to Geofina's destination, he remarked to Thortha that he should be armed. His friend took the comment as a joke and dropped Geofina at the doors of the near-deserted cafe. Geofina scanned the few patrons seated inside. The people he was looking for weren't there. Walking home in the cold, crisp air, Geofina opened the front door and heard his son pick up the ringing telephone. It was 10.15pm. The deep male voice on the line asked to speak to Geofina and his son dutifully handed over the phone. Geofina explained to the caller that he had already been to the cafe, before sighing and replying that he would return once again. Geofina's son asked if he could accompany his father, who abruptly denied the request. This time driving himself, Geofina parked his red Ford Cortina 200 metres from the entrance. He turned the engine off and left the keys in the ignition before making his way back to the cafe. His unlocked car was found the next day in the same position by detectives after Geofina's wife had reported him missing. The investigation offered little more in the way of clues than Guthmunder's disappearance had 10 months prior. However, unlike Guthmunder, Keblavik police believed immediately that Geofina had met with foul play due to his unexplained disappearance following a mysterious meeting. Police appealed for those who had arranged to meet with Geofina to come forward, but their requests went unanswered. A tracking dog latched on to Geofina's scent but stopped abruptly outside the cafe indicating that he had travelled in a car to another location. 
Patrons in the cafe at the time of Gaiafina's disappearance were questioned. Several noted a man making a call from a phone booth inside the cafe at approximately 10.15pm. Normally, this would not have drawn anyone's attention. However, everyone in Keblovic knew one another, and this man was an out-of-towner. Investigators speculated that this was the man who had called to arrange the rendezvous with Gaiafina. The man in the phone booth was described as 180 centimetres tall, slim, wearing a fake leather jacket and light-coloured pants. A bust was made out of clay depicting the physical attributes of the unknown man. It was shown on national TV and soon Keblovic police were inundated with people reporting those who resembled a likeness to the image. Meanwhile, detectives worked on the theory that Gaiafina might not have been as reserved and innocent as people suspected. In 1974, Beer greater than two and a quarter percent in alcoholic strength was banned throughout Iceland, and alcohol in general was very expensive. As a result, beer and spirits would often be smuggled in. The most common exchange would take place offshore. Watertight plastic containers were thrown from large ships into small boats who took them back to the mainland. A person who knew Gaiafina confessed that he was involved in smuggling alcohol into Iceland. This theory was further bolstered when someone rang the police to say that a man they knew resembled the clay bust. The man was local nightclub owner Magnus Leopoldsen. He had been seen speaking with Gaiafina at his club, Kluberen, a few days prior to Gaiafina's disappearance. Rumours circulated that Magnus also smuggled alcohol into Iceland. Magnus Leopoldsen was questioned by police on January 25, 1975. However, he was free to go after no association could be made between him and the disappearance of Gaiafina. Weeks went by. Desperate for a break in the case, a detective flew to Jordan with Gaiafina's wife to visit a psychic who claimed he could help solve the case. The week-long trip, funded by taxpayers, turned out to be a waste of time and money. Whilst police in Keblovic continued to investigate the disappearance of Gaiafina, Police in Reykjavik were busy tracing leads in an elaborate fraud involving money transfers to local post offices. Investigators questioned employees at the Telegraph Centre and learned that one of their workers, Erla Bolodolta, was dating Saiba Chashelsky. He was well known to police for his past criminal history, which included smuggling cannabis from Denmark. Another time, he had been arrested for stealing a large fish from the wharves and parading around town with it. Siva's connection with the telegraph service through Erla was an immediate red flag, and investigators searched for their whereabouts. The couple had spent a brief time in Denmark before moving into a flat on the outskirts of Reykjavik, The now 20-year-old Erla was thrilled when she found out she and Saiva were expecting a child. 
She told Saiva that her days of committing fraud were over and from now on she wanted to live a life free from any crime. The most important thing to her now was being a mother. Erla and Saiva's daughter was born in September. Three months later, on December 12, Saiva was arrested on suspicion of embezzlement regarding the money transfer scam. He was taken to see the Muli prison in Reykjavik for questioning. The next day, Erla was also arrested for questioning. In disbelief that they had been caught, she handed her 11-week-old daughter to her sister to care for. On the way to prison, she told the police that she had to be back soon because her baby needed her. Iceland's Sidamuli prison was a historic building located in Reykjavik's main shopping district. The exterior, built centuries ago from large, irregularly shaped rocks, housed the few prisoners in the Icelandic justice system. From the street, it could have been any other building, with no signage or fencing to indicate otherwise. Erla was taken through the front door and led down a corridor. The bright ceiling lights reflected off the linoleum floor. To either side of her, Erla could see the white bars of cell doors, and inside the cells, the walls were painted a bright green. Each cell contained a concrete bed with a thin rubber mattress and a stool. Erla was led into an interrogation room for questioning. The room was tiny and cold, and a small ceiling light shone onto the table where Erla was seated. Three detectives sat opposite her. In the corner sat a policeman at a typewriter, documenting Erla's every word. Detectives told her that Saiva had come clean about the money fraud scam, but had implicated Erla as the sole perpetrator in the crime. Erla sat in silence. The detectives encouraged her to confess. Desperate to see her baby, Erla admitted her role in the crime. She signed a statement outlining her participation in the money fraud. Confident the interrogation was over, Erla straightened in preparation to leave. A detective then flashed a photograph in her face. It was of a young man with long black hair and dark eyes. He asked if she had known him. Erla recognised the man in the photo. It was 18-year-old Guthmunda Reynason. She had met Guthmunda at a party years ago and remembered him because he was friendly and handsome. The detectives latched on to this information and the questioning continued for hours. Eventually, Erla gave up a secret she had been holding onto since the night of Guthmunda's disappearance, nearly two years prior. Erla remembered the night of Guthmunda's disappearance. She was in the midst of a depressive episode. A friend invited her to a party and Erla went reluctantly. Afterwards, she returned home to her father's apartment. 
The violent snowstorm had blanketed the ground outside the building in thick white snow. She remembered the scenery vividly. Certain that Siva was out seeing another woman, Erla lay in bed trying to get some sleep. Later that night, she heard voices outside her window. They were whispering, but she could recognise two of them. One was Siva, and the other was Siva's friend, Christian Vitherson. Erla was intimidated by Christian. He was a petty criminal with a large, well-built frame and a reputation of being a tough guy. As Siva only weighed 50 kilograms, the brutish Christian acted as his bodyguard. Erla didn't recognise the third voice, but was then startled when all the men came inside. After hours of questioning, Erla was exhausted and struggled to collect her thoughts. Detectives ceased the interrogation, offering Erla a night's reprieve in a prison cell to resume questioning the following morning. From the book The Reykjavik Confessions, the detectives listened the next day as Erla recounted what happened next after the men had made their way inside her house. The police report read, She made her way to the storage room where she saw Siva, Christian and a third man with something heavy between them, covered in a sheet. Christian and Siva tied each end of the sheet with a knot. Erla hadn't seen what was inside, but she thought it was a body. There was also a foul smell in the room and a strange wet patch on the floor. The three men picked up the body pushing past her in the doorway and knocking her over. Erla recalled, I couldn't move. I was cold, but at the same time, I felt like I was sweating. Later, Saiba took me by the arms and put me to bed. I said I was going to deny everything. Erla told the detectives that the day after she went to the garbage bin outside her house and found a soiled bedsheet inside. It appeared to have been dumped there after Siva, Christian and the third man had removed the body from the apartment. Over the course of the next few weeks, detectives continued to question Erla over the disappearance of Guthmunda Reynason. She remained in Seethamuli prison in solitary confinement. Saiva was also questioned and verified Erla's version of events. He told detectives that the third man Erla hadn't recognised was his friend, Trigvi Leifson. Saiva told detectives that Guthmunda, Christian, Trigvi and himself had gone to Erla's house. There had been a physical altercation which resulted in Guthmunda's death. Saiva called his friend Albert Skafterson to pick them up to dispose of Guthmunda's body under the pretense of having cannabis for him. Albert was arrested and confirmed that he had arrived on the night in question in his father's yellow Toyota. He recalled Saiva had asked him to open the boot of the vehicle Watching from the rearview mirror, he witnessed Siva, 
Trigvi and Christian carry a large bag with the difficulty out of the front door. They pushed it into the boot, causing the car to rock a little. From there, they travelled to the lava fields outside of Habnafjotha and dumped the large bag. Saiva confided to Albert on the drive back that it contained a body. He said that he and Christian had hacked the body into pieces to make it easier to dispose of. Christian, who was already serving a six-month sentence in another Icelandic prison for theft, was brought to see the Muli for questioning. He also provided a statement confirming that he was at Erla's house on the night of Guthmunda's disappearance and that a fight broke out between Trigvi and Guthmunda, resulting in his death. Admitting that he was heavily intoxicated at the time, Christian could only recall fragments of the rest of the night. He did remember getting into Albert's yellow Toyota and going to the lava fields to dispose of the body. After Christian had been questioned at 1.42am, he was driven to the lava fields in an attempt to jog his memory and show detectives where Guthmunda was buried. They returned to see the Muli prison at 3am, having failed to locate Guthmunda's remains. Trigvi Leifsson was an athletic man. He was kind and gentle, but also known to get into fights when drunk. As the circumstances of Guthmunda Reynason's death unravelled, he too was questioned in relation to his involvement. He initially denied everything, but after weeks of solitary confinement, admitted that he had thought a lot about the case and was ready to talk to detectives. On January 9, 1976, he admitted to his part in Guthmunda's death, although he didn't know the man personally, telling detectives, There was some disagreement, I'm sure, between Christian and the man with no name. It started by them cursing each other, but ended in a fight. Then the man hit me, and I think I hit him, and he fell to the floor. Then I saw Saiva kick him in the head. Saiva, Christian, Albert and Trigvi were held in custody. Erla, after it was determined she played no part in the murder of Guthmunda, was free to leave to await a court date for the money fraud case. Ten days after being arrested, she went to live with her mother, ecstatic to be reunited with her daughter. Although Erla was free from the confines of a jail cell, she continued to be visited regularly by investigators who came around for coffee and cigarettes to discuss the Guthmunda case with her. Over the time of her incarceration, these men had become Erla's confidants. She felt they were more like friends than detectives. She became particularly close to Detective Sigurbjörn Vida, who was young, helpful and sympathetic to Erla and her ordeal. One day, Detective Vida asked Erla a question out of the blue. If she or Saiva knew anything about the disappearance of Gaia Reynason. She replied, Maybe. 
Erla confided that she had been receiving threatening calls at her mother's house, warning her that she had said too much to detectives. When asked who she thought was making the calls, Erla suspected it may have been her half-brother, professional basketball player Aina Botherson. She also believed that some of his friends were involved, including a man who ran a nightclub named Kluberen in Reykjavik. The man was Magnus Leopoldsen. Erla was not particularly close to her half-brother Aina. Their relationship had soured after Erla began dating Saiva, a man Aina despised for his involvement in petty crimes. Following this, detectives questioned Saiva about Gayafina. He refused to comment initially, but provided a statement to police on January 22, 1976. He admitted he had seen Gayafina on the night of his disappearance. He had gone to the Keblavik docks with Christian, Erla and some other men to smuggle alcohol into Iceland. One of the other men met Gayafina outside a cafe and brought him along. Saiva then said he went for a drive and when he returned to pick up the men, it was immediately apparent that their smuggling operation had gone awry. Gayafina had fallen off the boat and drowned in freezing waters. Erla shared a similar story. However, she implicated Saiva further in Gayafina's death. The police notes taken from Erla's interrogation read, On the night of 19 November 1974, Erla and Saiva had been at Kluberen and they were not having much fun. They decided to leave and got into a blue Mercedes with two others, taking off without a planned destination. They headed out of Reykjavik. They drove past her home in Habnafjordur and on towards the airport at Keblavik. Saiva held onto her hand the whole time, even when she tried to release his grip. He spoke to the driver. She couldn't remember the exact conversation. They were talking about killing someone by taking him out to sea, pretending they were going to get something. It was a last resort. They had tried to offer this man money, but he wouldn't listen. They would have to make him disappear. They were on a mission to murder. When they reached Keblovic, they stopped by the foreshore. It was a spooky place at night, littered with battered trawlers propped up on blocks waiting to be repaired before being thrust back into the sea. When they got out of the car, Erla saw the face of the driver who had been speaking to Saiva. It was Magnus Leopoldsen from Kluberen. There were other men there. Gayafina had promised the men he could get hold of smuggled alcohol being dropped from a boat out at sea. Erla recognised her half-brother Aina and Saiva's friend and familiar partner in crime, Christian Vitherson. Gayafina was talking to Saiva and Magnus when a fight broke out. The others were preoccupied and didn't see her inching away. And then she ran. 
she wanted to get away and hide. She found an abandoned house which was either still being built or used for storage. She hid there in a corner. She couldn't remember for exactly how long. As she waited, she felt so bad that she threw up. On January 23, Christian also confessed to being at Keblovic that night and seeing Saiva, Erla and her half-brother Aina there. However, being under the influence of drugs for the latter part of 1974, Christian was hazy about the details. Three days later, Aina and Magnus were arrested, as was Magnus's nightclub co-owner Sigurbjörn Eriksson and Valdemar Olsen, the brother of one of Erla's friends. The arrest of these four men sent shockwaves throughout Iceland. They gained notoriety as the Kluberen Four from the name of the nightclub owned by Magnus and Sigurbjörn. Unlike Saiva and his friends who were involved in petty crimes, these men were well-respected members of the community. Rumours circulated that these men were part of an organised crime syndicate and were being protected from those in positions of power, including the Minister for Justice. Despite long stints in solitary confinement and hours of questioning, the Kluberen Four continued to protest their innocence. In an attempt to calm the public, police held a press conference. The Kluberen Four had been in custody for two months. The investigation team felt pressured to reassure the public that they were doing what they could to solve the case. With over a year that had passed since Geofina's disappearance, detectives felt that it wouldn't be long before the truth came out. Basketball player Aina Botherson was sitting in his prison cell at Seethamuli, where he had been incarcerated for the last three months. He maintained his innocence, certain that his half-sister, Erla, had implicated him because of his dislike of Saivar. As extra punishment by the prison guards, Aina had been moved into the smallest cell available. It was barely high enough to contain his tall frame. His limbs hung over the hard rubber mattress that lined the concrete bed. Aina had a revelation. The night of Geofina's disappearance suddenly came to him. He had been watching television at home with his family. It was a documentary about Scottish men participating in the Highland Games. He informed the investigators about his memories of the program, who in turn took him to the television station to review the tapes. The video was paused, and Aina explained what happened next. He also remembered earlier in the night that he had been fundraising for his basketball team. Other team members confirmed his alibi, as did a babysitter hired to look after Aina's children that night. Upon investigating the other alibis, Magnus Leopoldson also had someone to vouch for his whereabouts. 
An employee at Kluberen's cloakroom kept a detailed log on the comings and goings of various staff members. On the night of Gaefina's disappearance, she documented that Magnus had been at the club from early evening until midnight, meaning he couldn't have been at the Keblevik docks at the time specified by Erla and Siva. The Kluberen Four were innocent. After four months in custody, Magnus Leopoldsen, Einar Botherson, Sigurbjörn Eriksson and Valdemar Olsen were released from Seethemulli prison. Aside from the statements made by Erla, Saiva and Christian, there was no evidence to connect them to the murder of Geofina Einarsson. The men were placed under police surveillance and warned not to speak to the media about the case. Embarrassed, detectives zeroed in on Erla, certain she had implicated the Kluberen Four as a ruse to take the heat off herself. Now under more pressure than ever to solve the cases and to recover from the public shame of arresting and holding four prominent Icelandic citizens, it was decided that outside help would be enlisted to solve the Guthmunder and Geofinna disappearances. In May 1976, the Minister of Justice hired prominent detective Karl Schutz from Germany to assist. He assembled a team and in brusque German told the public through a translator that he would solve the crimes. Schutz poured over the case and re-interviewed Siva, Christian and Trigvi who were still in custody. Albert, accused of driving Guthmunder's body for burial in the yellow Toyota, had been released. On May 3, Erla Bothladotter was arrested for perjury in implicating the Kluberen Four. She was morose and detectives were concerned for her mental health. Erla sat with Detective Karl Schutz. Through the help of an interpreter, he interrogated her as to why she had named them as suspects. Eventually, Erla opened up. The confession she gave to detectives explained her dejected state. Erla confessed to shooting Geofina herself at the Keblovic docks with a rifle. From the book The Reykjavik Confessions, the police notes read, In the murky light, Saiva handed her something heavy. It was a rifle, although she couldn't say exactly what it looked like. He showed her how to hold it, but it wasn't there as a scare tactic. They intended to use it. Geofina was brought over, and she had been so close to him she could see his face, etched with fear and horror as he realised what was about to happen to him. They had come up with a solution for this annoying, unreasonable man. Erla closed her eyes as she pulled the trigger. The rifle jolted in her hands as the bullet flew from the barrel into Geofina's body. Siva immediately took the rifle from her as they dealt with the man dying on the ground in front of them, his blood staining the snow. 
It was only after the fact that Erla panicked, and in the confusion she was able to sneak away and hide in a deserted house close by, where she spent the night. When she returned home the next day, Saiva was angry. He wanted to know where she had been all night. He never mentioned Gaia again and refused to talk about that night. They would banish it from their minds, a secret they would keep for themselves. They would pretend it never happened. This confession contradicted Sivers, who now said that he had killed Gaia by hitting him on the head with a wooden plank. Christian's account recalled he had drowned in the ocean. It was determined that Christian had been the man who had called Gaia to the cafe. Detectives were irritated at the perpetrator's ever-changing confessions. In desperation, they organised for Erla, Saiva and Christian to be interviewed together to find out what had actually happened. After hours of questioning, a final confession was agreed upon and signed. Saiva and Christian were responsible for Gaiafina's death, while Erla was an innocent bystander. Police agreed she was likely trying to protect the others by taking responsibility for the crime. A search commenced for Gaiafina's body. Erla showed detectives where she believed Saiva and Christian buried him. Rathola, also known as the Red Hills, on the outskirts of Reykjavik, was a vast rocky landscape where mounds of red dirt rose up from the barren ground. It was in this area that Saiva and Christian confessed to burying Gaia after setting his body alight and then dumping it in a shallow grave. The area was excavated thoroughly, but Gaia wasn't found. When asked how his body was transported to such an isolated location, all three named 32-year-old Guthjorn Skarpjethensen. He drove them 50 kilometres from the Keblovik docks to the Red Hills. Guthjorn, a former schoolteacher and friend of Sivers, was placed under arrest. Given that he was a well-regarded schoolteacher and older than his counterparts, his confession was given the most credibility. Guthjorn had no alibi, as he was not able to remember what he had done the night of Gaiafina's disappearance. Initially denying any involvement, he confessed to Karl Schutz two weeks after being taken into custody. As well as being the driver of the car that took Gaiafina's body to the Red Hills, Guthjorn also admitted to beating Gaiafina to death with Saiva and Christian. From the documentary Out of Thin Air, Guthjorn said, The three of us fought with Gaia That resulted in his death. I don't remember the body being put into the car, but on the way back to Reykjavik, I remember I was sad that I was an accomplice to murder. On January 23, 1977, 
Carl Schutz held a press conference to announce that all suspects had been detained for the murders of Guthmunda and Geofina Anderson. He explained that even though they had not located either body, the confessions were 95% of the evidence and were plausible. Schutz outlined the attempts that Erla, Saiva, Trigvi, Christian and Guthion had made to complicate the investigation, to shift the focus of guilt off themselves. He concluded the conference by saying, As we criminal investigators like to say, this case is beyond reasonable doubt. It's safe to assume it's an open and shut case. He opined that Saiva was the ringleader with the street smarts behind the operation, Guthion was the brains, and Christian was the brawn. He painted Trigvi and Albert as simply stoners who were easily led by the other three, as was Erla, who would do anything for Saiva's approval. The Icelandic Prime Minister, Oliver Johannesson, praised Detective Carl Schutz's work, He told the public, The nightmare is over. The murder trial began on October 3, 1977. Under the Icelandic system, an inquisitorial system, the case had already been heard by district judges. They had returned a guilty verdict. From there, the case went to the Supreme Court where instead of a jury, five judges were left to decide the defendant's fate. After 15 and a half hours of testimony from the state prosecutor, Saiva Chashelsky took the stand. Dressed in a velvet suit with flared pants, aviator glasses and his long hair loose, the thin and gaunt Saiva professed his innocence. He pleaded for his statements and those of his co-accused to be retracted. Christian sat forward in the front row, eyes darting around the courtroom. Erla, wearing a pinafore with her hair pinned to the side, looked childlike and contemplative, her head resting on her hand. The trial lasted five days. Just over ten weeks later, the group learned their fate. All were found guilty. For his role in transporting the body of Guthmunda in his father's yellow Toyota, Albert Skafterson was sentenced to 15 months prison. Although found innocent of any involvement in the murders of Guthmunda and Geofina, Erla Botladotter was sentenced to three years for embezzlement in the money scam and perjury for implicating the Kluber and Four in a crime they didn't commit. Guthjorn Skarpjadensen was sentenced to 12 years for his part in the death of Geofina and transporting the body for burial. Trigvi Leifsen was sentenced to 16 years for killing Guthmunda and Saiba Chashelsky and Christian Vitherson were both sentenced to life in prison for killing Guthmunda and Geofina. This made Saiba and Christian the first people in Iceland to be convicted of a double murder in more than 100 years. 
none of the suspects were present in court when the verdicts were read. They learned of their outcome as they read the newspaper in their cells the following morning or being told by prison guards. One by one they were shipped off to various prisons around Iceland to serve their sentences, leaving the confines of Seethamulli prison behind. Icelanders rejoiced that those responsible for the deaths of two of their own were off the streets. Problem was, they were all innocent. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Erla Bolladotter was nervous as she was escorted into Sethamulli Prison for the first time on December 13, 1975, after being arrested for the money fraud scam. After confessing to the fraud, Erla stood up to leave. An investigator then waved a photo in front of her. It was of Guthmunder Einarsson. She met him at a party years ago. The detective asked her where she had been the night he disappeared. Erla remembered that night of January 27, 1974. She had been at a party with a friend and desperate to leave. Later, she lay in bed. The snowstorm roared on outside as wild winds lashed the building, making the walls creak. Erla told the interviewing detective about a nightmare she had that night. It began with voices outside of her window. In hushed tones, they discussed whether Erla was awake or not. Erla was terrified. She got up to check who it was and saw Siva, Christian and someone she didn't know. It was then that she woke up. The detectives interjected reminding her that Siva was a petty thief and played on her worry that he was unfaithful to her. After telling the investigators about her nightmare over and over, the lead detective leant forward. Erla later spoke on the documentary Out of Thin Air. According to Erla, he said, Something terrible happened that night in that apartment. You witnessed it and you cannot recall it because of the trauma it caused you. So what we're going to do now is get you back to your cell so you can try and remember as much as you can, and then we'll talk about it some more. They advised Erla they would resume questioning the next morning. 
Erla lay awake in her cell, trying to remember what had happened. She was saddened by Siva's betrayal implicating her solely in the money scam, and she thought of the times he had been unfaithful to her. Over the night, Erla came to think that perhaps Siva had been involved in Guthmunda's disappearance and death. She searched her memory as to what had happened. Her head was full of images, and she came to question whether her nightmare was real. She thought harder. Now, Erla remembered being at the door to the storage room and seeing the men with a bag. It looked like it was in the shape of a body. She told detectives this the following morning. They encouraged her, telling her how brave she was. When she failed to remember something, the investigators presented her with theories. Could Guthmunda have been in a fight in the cottage? Could Siva have taken his body somewhere? The more she thought about it, the more Erla could see a picture in her mind. She told detectives she had found a sheet in the bin the next day, but was too embarrassed to admit that she had thrown it out after soiling herself during the night. Instead, Erla became evasive and told them that she didn't know how her sheet had come to be discarded in the trash. Detectives mistook her evasiveness for guilt and interrogated her for hours about it. She admitted it may have contained Guthmunda's body. When she signed the confession and was let out of prison, Erla was relieved. She thought it was all over. Days later, detectives phoned Erla to say that Siva had confessed to killing Guthmunda with Christian and Trigvi. He admitted to cutting Guthmunda's body into pieces, placing it into a linen bag, and then driving it away with Albert to dispose of it. Erla was horrified, but reassured. Now that Siva had confessed, her memories must have been correct. Erla couldn't believe that she didn't recall the dismemberment of Guthmunda's body, but Siva and Christian had confirmed she was present, so she knew she must have witnessed it. Erla concluded that she couldn't trust her own memories. Meanwhile, Siva, Christian and Trigvi were in solitary confinement at Seethamuli Prison. Weeks of hour-long interrogations, many without their lawyers present, had worn them down. They were drugged four times a day with various sedatives and left to sit alone, reflecting on what had happened. When Siva heard that Erla had implicated him in the murder of Guthmunda, he lay on his thin mattress racking his brain as to what had happened. When he really concentrated, He thought that maybe Albert had driven the car to dispose of Guthmunda's body, and perhaps Guthion had driven the car after the murder of Gaiafina. After constant interrogating, Siva gave the men up, desperate for the questioning to end. The detectives placed a typed confession in front of Siva, Christian, Trigvi, Albert and Guthion. All they had to do was sign it, and the interrogations and solitary confinement would be over. Drugged and confused, they all signed on the dotted line. 
in an early prison diary entry, Guthion wrote, The detective wants me to get used to the thought of being a murderer. If they think I am going to confess to Cyber and Erla's stories, then they are wrong. After a few weeks of solitary confinement and in a vulnerable state, Guthion wrote the following entry. You get tired and you don't know if you are dreaming or remembering things. The same questions over and over. I get completely confused. It came like clips of a movie into your mind. In the end, you feel like you have been there, like that this has really happened. Erla, Albert, Guthion, Trigvi, Christian and Saiva were all eventually released from prison after serving their required sentences. On August 9, 1981, in what she later called the happiest day of her life, Erla was met on release by her and Saiva's five-year-old daughter holding a bouquet of flowers. Upon his release, Guthion moved to Denmark to study theology. When he returned to Iceland, he married and became a priest. His notoriety had him sometimes snubbed by members of the Icelandic community, but over time he became accepted. Christian found work in manual labour, but returned to prison for five years after physically assaulting his wife. Albert found work as a carpenter, married and had children, completing charity work in his spare time. Trigvi also found work as a decorator. Of all six, Saiva struggled the most with life after prison. Released in 1984, Saiva married and had two sons. He struggled to find work, and everywhere he went, people whispered and pointed to him as he walked past. He could go nowhere without being heckled. Saiva also suffered from nightmares reliving his time in prison. In 1993, Saiva and his family moved to Colorado in the USA for a fresh start. But Saiva could not stop thinking about clearing his name, and the need to be found innocent by his Icelandic community consumed him. They returned to Iceland a year later. Prior to being incarcerated, Saiva did not drink alcohol, but on release he used it as a coping mechanism. It wasn't long before Saiva became an alcoholic. He often met with Erla and they would talk about what had gone wrong that led them to make the accusations and confessions. However, Saiva was resentful of Erla for implicating him in the murders and there was a rift in their relationship that could not be repaired. Saiva hired a lawyer who pored over the case resources looking for evidence that Saiva was innocent. He was shocked by the police notes in the case and how heavily they had relied on confessions from the six when there were no bodies or evidence to link them to the crimes. On February 21, 1997, Saiva appealed to the Supreme Court to have the case reopened. The judges ruled that there was not enough evidence to reopen the case, however they conceded that Saiva was badly mistreated in prison. He appealed another two times to have his name cleared over the following years, 
with no success. The process was taking its toll heavily on Saiva, who drank to excess, became bankrupt, separated from his wife, and ended up on the streets. He had a following of people who believed in his innocence, and many of the Icelandic community had changed their minds about him. Saiva Chashelsky died in July 2011 at the age of 56. His funeral was packed with all walks of life to pay their respects, from high-ranking politicians to Saiva's family to his homeless friends. Following his death, Erla Bolodotta returned to the public eye. Still largely outcast by Icelandic society who thought of her as a conniving liar, Erla had moved to Hawaii with her daughter for a few years to escape. The difference between life on a tropical island and the one she knew in Iceland was too great, and she returned home. Following a particularly distressing incident where a member of the public came up and spat in her face, Erla pleaded for the case to be reopened. But with a lack of new evidence, there was little that could be done. In May 2009, Christine Trigvedota held the hand of her dying father. Suffering from esophageal cancer, Trigvi Leifsson had led a full life after his prison sentence. He had become a decorator, been married, and had three children. Christine was close to her gentle and fun-loving dad, who always had time for her. She remembered being called the daughter of a murderer by one of her school teachers as a small child. But looking at her father now, she knew it wasn't the truth. As she sat next to his hospital bed, she had something to confess to him. Christine told her father that when she was a teenager, she had found some of his diaries concealed in a box in the basement. Trigvi knew of the diaries. He had filled books and books documenting his arrest and interrogation in Seethamuli prison. A priest he had befriended in the prison smuggled them out and kept them until Trigvi was free. Trigvi thought he had burned all of the diaries long ago. Christine explained to him that she had taken a few and hidden them under her mattress, only daring to read them when she knew she was alone. He smiled, happy that she had read a part of his life he had kept so private from everyone. She asked her father what he wanted her to do with the diaries. He told her to keep them, adding that she would know what to do with them when the time was right. A few days later, Trigby Leifson passed away. Two years later, in 2011, Christine showed the diaries to journalist Helga Arnadotta, who was researching the case. Heart racing, she watched on as Helga leafed through the diaries. When she had finished, Helga told Christine she had something special. With Christine's permission, she contacted Geisley Guthjensen, a forensic psychologist and leading expert in false confessions. Two days later, Helga and Christine knocked on the door of Geisley's home in South London. Geisley studied the diaries cover to cover. The entries documented Trigvi's imprisonment in solitary confinement, 
his daily druggings with sedatives, and how he questioned his sanity. A common theme that arose was Trigvi's belief that if he confessed, his time in solitary confinement would be over. Trigvi thought he would have the chance to withdraw his confession, explain the truth at the trial, and he would be found a free man. After studying the case further, Geesley could not believe the hours of interrogation the six accused had gone through without their lawyers present. He formed the opinion that five of the accused had what he termed memory distrust syndrome, in which an individual does not trust their own memory and so comes to rely upon outside sources for information rather than using their own ability to recall facts. In the documentary Out of Thin Air, Geesley Guthjensen said, This is the only case I know of where so many individuals have had their memories distorted to this extent. They were just trying to appease the police. They were trying to be cooperative because they knew if they were not cooperative, they would be given more solitary confinement. Christian Vitherson looked forward to the times he would be sent to scour the desolate landscape to try and remember where the bodies of Guthmunder and Geofina Anison had been buried. The brief moment of freedom, despite grim, was a welcomed change to his time in prison. One time he was taken out of his cell was on January 23, 1977. In a photo recovered from the police files, Christian can be seen in the lava fields wearing a melancholy expression with his left arm wrapped around a policeman's neck in a chokehold. The policeman was pretending to be Geofina with Christian reenacting how he had incapacitated him. Forensic psychologist Geisley Guthjensen noted the danger of reenactments in an individual with memory distrust syndrome. Such acts might reinforce to the individual that the event actually occurred in that way. Armed with this information, journalist Helga Arnadotter compiled a special news report that ran on national television. Later that week, the Ministry of Justice announced a review of the case to look into the methods used in the investigation and how the confessions were obtained. It was quickly established that critical errors had been made in the course of the investigation, even though many of the police files relevant to the case were missing. Guards at Seethamulli Prison came forward with horror stories regarding what the six accused had been subjected to. One of the accused was hated by prison guards and officers in particular. Nicknamed the Rat by those in charge of his welfare, it was Cyber Chashelsky. Often considered the ringleader of the group that murdered Guthmunder and Geofina, Cyber was subjected to brutal methods in order to obtain a confession. Along with being drugged with sedatives Mogadon, Diazepam and Chlorpromazine, Cyber was subjected to sleep deprivation. An overhead light buzzed in his prison cell 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. While the rest of the cells had a period of lights out to mimic night, Cybers remained on. He once tried to cover it with a woolen hat, but it was removed instantly. 
When Saiva did drift off to sleep, guards would bang on his cell with steel chairs to rouse him. If he refused to answer questions, he was strangled by his shirt collar until he passed out. One day in July 1976, Saiva, who had a profound fear of water, was taken to the bathrooms of the prison. As water ran from one of the taps, filling a sink, Saiba had his head held under water by guards who laughed to one another that they were drowning the rat. Completely broken and in a vulnerable state, Saiba confessed to the murders. Detectives took Saiba to the sites where he claimed to have buried the bodies. His inability to find them was seen as him deliberately obstructing the investigation rather than him not knowing. While other inmates were allowed books, pens, tobacco and newspapers, Saiba was denied. The guards reasoned that he should instead sit and think about his actions. He was also denied visits from family. The other five accused also suffered from isolation and a lack of human interaction which had a profound effect on their mental well-being. Christian wrote in his diary in prison, There was nothing but waiting, waiting for the next interrogation, wondering what I would say. In the cell I could do nothing but think. I grew into the walls. I could not feel my body. I was just a head. Two times while awaiting trial, Christian tried to take his own life. Trigvi recounted a similar feeling in his diary, stating, I've got so many drugs, so much medication that I can't remember my name. I wake up and I can't remember if my mother passed away or if I was dreaming it. The thoughts of reuniting with her baby were the only thing getting Erla through her isolation. She told the documentary, Out of Thin Air. I wasn't allowed to go outside. I was in complete isolation. Very soon, you shrink down into this helpless baby and you're in this abstract world. I thought to myself, did I really even have a baby? Or is that my imagination also? Because I swear that I feel like I do, but no pictures coming. You can't trust your own mind. In the book The Reykjavik Confessions, Erla detailed one night where she was raped by a policeman in her cell. The policeman put his hand over her mouth to stop her calling out while he lay on top of her on her prison bed. When he finished and prepared to leave, he told her that he was taking great risks by being a friend to her and she should be grateful. By the time Erla found the courage to speak up about the event, the statute of limitations had expired and it was too late for her to press charges. Erla was also subjected to what was called a memory injection by police detectives under the instruction of Detective Carl Schutz to try and jog her memory of what had happened in the events of Geofinna's death. Under the effects of the drug, Erla admitted that she had made up what had happened from what she had read in newspapers 
and twisted the facts to create a story that was entirely false. The detectives believed that she had been receiving inside information from Siva, who was telling her what to say, and refused to believe her. On March 23, 2013, the committee into the case of what has been termed the Reykjavik Confessions presented their findings. The key finding was that the confessions, in all likelihood, were fabricated. The committee recommended that the state prosecutor reopen the case. Five and a half years later, Erla Bolodotta and the families of Siva Chashelsky and Trigby Leifson sat amongst the crowded courtroom in Reykjavik. Collectively, they held their breath as the verdict was read. 44 years after the disappearances of Guthmunda and Gaia Finnerainason, Siva Chashelsky, Christian Bitherson, Trigvi Leifson, Guthjon Skarphjadenson and Albert Skarfdesson were found not guilty in the murders and disposal of the two men. In an unusual turn of events, both the prosecution and the defence demanded they be acquitted. It was a bittersweet moment for the families of Siva and Trigvi, knowing that they weren't alive to see justice done. Erla Bolodotta did not have her name cleared in relation to the perjury of the Kluber and Four. Some argued that she should be acquitted given that the whole case was built on falsified confessions. She held her head high and returned to her job as a language teacher, helping those who recently migrated to Iceland to learn the language. 46 years after their disappearances, the case of Guthmunda and Gaia Finnerainason is as well known today amongst Icelanders as it was then. Despite the passage of time, new leads occasionally trickle into police. In 2015, Stefan Almerson was questioned by police after testimony from Stefan's ex-girlfriend shed new light on Guthmunda's disappearance. Stefan was already known in the case. In the early days of the investigation, he was questioned and told police he thought that Saiba and Christian were responsible for Guthmunda's disappearance. For the sake of clarity, we will refer to Stefan's ex-girlfriend as Helga. Helga came forward to say that she was a passenger in Stefan's vehicle the night Guthmunda went missing. According to Helga, the car struck Guthmunda while he was walking down the road. She, along with Stefan and his friend Thorther Atherson, helped Guthmunda into the car. He thanked them for picking him up. Helga was then dropped off home. As she left the vehicle, Guthmunda was visibly suffering from the collision. Blood was coming out of his ear and nose. That was the last time Helga saw him. Both Stefan and Thorther denied these allegations wholeheartedly. With no forensic evidence to prove the accusations, the investigation was dropped. According to the Iceland Review, in 2016 a man contacted the police to say he had been holding on to information since Geofinna's disappearance. 
For the sake of clarity, we will refer to this witness as Yon. Yon claimed that the day after Gaia went missing, he and his girlfriend were at Vestmanea. The small island was 190 kilometres east of Keblavik, where Gaia's car was found. The couple witnessed three men dressed in civilian clothing arrive on a small boat and make their way to a fish processing plant on the island. The man in the middle of the three seemed weak and appeared to be losing consciousness. As Yon and his partner walked past, the man in the middle allegedly said, Remember me. Shortly after, the men boarded another boat. Yon watched as the three men went out to sea. He saw the boat return to the shore again, but only two men came back. Two days later, his girlfriend received an anonymous call stating that she and her boyfriend would be killed if they spoke of what they saw. As those come forward offering theories as to what did happen to Guthmunder and Gaia so do those working to bolster the innocence of those accused of their murders. At the time of Guthmunder's disappearance, the phone at Erla's apartment was disconnected due to an unpaid phone bill. This was confirmed by the Icelandic telephone company and meant that Cyber couldn't have used it to phone Albert to pick up Guthmunder's body. Furthermore, the yellow Toyota that Albert Skafterson said belonged to his father that was used to dump the body of Guthmunder was not owned by his father at the time of Guthmunder's disappearance. Albert said he watched from his rearview mirror as Cyber, Christian and Trigvi put the body in the boot of the car. At the time, Albert's father drove a tiny Volkswagen Beetle. The boot was at the front of the car. From the book Out of Thin Air, in 2016, journalist Jon Danielson looked into Cyber's alibi at the time of Gaia disappearance. Cyber had given this information to the judges at the trial, however, it was not investigated further. Cyber alleged he had gone to his mother's house to watch television. Cyber remembered the show. It was a news report about a company in France guilty of tampering with red wine. Jon Danielson looked through the archives for the television guide for that night. There was a news report from France titled Winegate, which finished at 11pm, when Cyber was allegedly with Gaia at the Keblavik docks. Prior to his arrest, Guthjorn Skarphjertensen kept newspaper clippings and notes about the Gaia case in a small book in his study. When it was found in a search by police, he explained that after being questioned in May 1976 as an acquaintance of Sivers, he decided to take notes and keep up to date with the case. Detective Carl Schutz thought it was so he could construct the perfect alibi if he were ever arrested, a theory that fell through as Guthjorn could give no alibi for the night in question. In his first diary entry in prison dated November 18, 1976, Guthjorn wrote, 
I know nothing about this case. Sometimes I feel guilty, that I'm guilty of something, but I can't remember what happened. This is taking away all of my strength. I must be ill. Two days later, he wrote, New humiliation, disgrace and shame. I, who lived in the belief in the two years previously that I knew nothing about the matter, and now I have been involved in it. Am I insane, or have I been there? I say yes to that. Much of what I have done in recent years was insanity. Erla continues to try and explain what led to her confessing to a crime she didn't commit. In the book The Reykjavik Confessions, she says, The detectives would explain that we needed to get the confession done or I was risking that I would lose my child and they didn't want to see that happen. Somewhere, I always knew it didn't happen. So I really needed to believe that it had happened and they kept throwing me something to help me believe it. On January 29, 2020, the State Treasury dispensed the total of 815 million Icelandic krona, the equivalent of nearly 8.2 million Australian dollars, to Christian, Albert, Guthjon, and the families of Saiva and Trigvi as compensation for their wrongful conviction and imprisonment. In the course of the investigation, Saiva Chashelsky spent 615 days in solitary confinement. During that time, he was interrogated 180 times for a total of 340 hours until he confessed to the crimes to end his solitary confinement. Erla Bolodotta spent 241 days in solitary confinement and was interrogated 105 times until she confessed to her involvement. She is still campaigning to have her perjury conviction overturned. Trigvi Leifsson spent the most time in solitary confinement at a total of 655 days, the longest recorded period of solitary confinement endured by someone outside of Guantanamo Bay. His diaries, later taken by his daughter Christine, were titled, This is a diary that an innocent man is keeping in here regarding a big case that he is wrongly accused for but the truth will always come out, even if it is late. An entry dated April 25, 1977, read, So now, I have been here continuously for 16 months and 11 days in custody, including 14 months in isolation, totally alone. I shall hold fast. I don't have to be afraid, as I'm innocent and justice always prevails in the end.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.